This podcast includes information provided by the issuer and does not express the views of the interviewer. This podcast may also include forward-looking statements by the issuer that involve certain risks and uncertainties to its business. Because forward-looking statements are subject to risks and uncertainties, the issuer's actual results could differ from those indicated in this podcast. Welcome to the Planet Microcap Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft, and thank you all so much for the support and for tuning in. You can follow Planet Microcap on Twitter at Bobby K. Kraft. That's B-O-B-B-Y-K-K-R-A-F-T. And you are listening to episode 68. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to tweet at me or shoot me an email at rcraft at snnwire.com. And when you do get a chance, if you like what you hear, please rate and review Planet Microcap on iTunes. It really helps provide feedback for me and spread the Microcap message. For this episode, I spoke with Carl Douglas, Chief Investment Officer of PPMT Capital Advisors. Not only does Carl run a multifamily office advisory firm at PPMT, he also has been a regular contributing writer to the Microcap Review Magazine and has unique insight covering the Microcap space. In the spring 2018 issue of the magazine, we published this article titled, Family Offices, What You Need to Know. Since we haven't really covered this topic in depth on the podcast, I thought this would be an interesting topic to cover and share with you all with the goal to learn as much as we can about family offices. Thank you again for tuning in to episode 68, and I would like to introduce Carl Douglas, Chief Investment Officer of PPMT Capital Advisors. Carl, welcome to the Planet Microcap Podcast. Hey, Bobby. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. It's great to have you on. And, uh, you know, as we always do here when we get started is uh, let's get your background. You know, how did you get started in the the wide world of uh, finance? Oh, my goodness. All right. So we go all the way back to 1986. All right. Sometimes I I wonder, should I really go that far back? Because people think maybe that's irrelevant, you know, but the Dow was around 1700. Um, I was at a company called Integrated Resources, which at the time was a Fortune 50 company that actually was uh, an asset manager. Uh, Integrated Resources was very heavily involved in uh, the real estate space. From there, I went to Solomon Brothers. Uh, and then from there, I went to Bear Stearns and uh, spent a good part of my career at JP Morgan and also Merrill Lynch. And that takes us from 1986 all the way up to 2000, and I think that's probably a good framework to then, uh, you know, sort of transition and say, well, this is when microcap uh, investing really started for me. I will say though, my first microcap investment was a company called Automatics, which uh, traded on the pink sheets, believe it or not, back in 1986, and uh, we ended up uh, me and a group of guys. Uh, uh, cornering the market on automatics. I think we owned about 30% of it at one point. Great trade. And uh, that always inspired my interest in, uh, in, the, uh, in the microcap sector. So Carl, just quickly follow up on that. Are you still currently a shareholder in automatics? No, I'm, I'm not a shareholder in automatics at the present time. Mm-hmm. But my first real um, dive into the microcap sector was... Uh, Sort of in as a private investment, um, it was a, I was involved in a venture capital raise uh, for a company that we raised about oh, $28 million uh, for an internet technology and um, 
had a very large opportunity to get capital in. 9-11 happened. Uh, a lot of the capital dried up around 9-11. And uh, by the end of 2002, we ended up having to do a reverse merger. We raised a significant amount of capital um, uh, you know, in, in uh, Reg D rounds in the private, uh, in the merger, and, um, and then essentially exited into a uh, private sale to another public company that was consolidating various technologies in 2003. So um, my first uh, foray, real foray into microcap was as CEO of a uh, $300 million market cap company that, uh, you know, uh, traded on the OTC. Mm-hmm. along with all of the uh you know bells and whistles that you would imagine go along with that but uh yeah that was my that was my start in microcap so since then um i've been doing merchant banking investing and uh did seven deals between 2003 and i guess 2015 and in 2015 i started ppmt capital advisors as a multifamily office manager mm-hmm so then, so you know, for you, you know, how, how do you then analyze a potential new microcap investment? You know, you're coming more from the institutional side, but maybe, uh, you know, use some of that retail experience as well. You know, so maybe combine. I'm, is it like a combined approach? You know, what? How would you say? Well, um, you know, a lot of people use uh, you know basic buzzwords for how they go about it, but. You know, I would say that we're very much fundamental in terms of how how we approach um, investments. First and foremost, we start with the balance sheet, understanding what the status of the company is, where they are in their in their in their development, and you know, cash flow and balance sheet can tell you quite a bit about what's going on with the company. The second area that we focus on is management. We're very um, I guess focused on management's track record and uh, management's ability to execute the plan that they're basically, you know, uh, developing. So, uh, you know, give you an example. We've done a lot of uh, work in in energy um, and mining. Uh, in fact, since 2015, we put out about 300, 300 just over 300 million in capital um, in in those types of um, investments. Microcap, as you know, uh, particularly with Canadian companies and others, uh, it's very mining and energy centric. So, um, you know, last couple of years we've invested in natural gas, um, also uh, some of the shale oil development. And so we'll look first and foremost at, you know, what's happening with the company, look at the reserve reports, try to understand you know, what the quality is in t- of the PV10 reports that are available or the, you know, the JORC reports or whatever particular uh, report that they're looking at. Look at that very closely. And then we look at the balance sheet and cash flow and try to understand exactly uh, what is going on. Is the plan sufficiently capitalized? Generally, in the microcap sector, we find that they're undercapitalized. Um, you know, it happens so often that, you know, a management team will acquire an asset, go into a public uh, vehicle, and then rely on equity almost solely without really focusing on, you know, a comprehensive capital structure that allows them to get uh, get the asset into production. Mm-hmm. So we'll focus on that as well. And then 
management, management, management. I mean, with the market, you know, having been so successful over the last couple of years, uh, particularly in the energy sectors, uh, you're seeing a lot of um, sort of, uh, you know, I guess the A-team that's available out of, uh, you know, uh, energy resources in particular being hired by the majors. And so it's, it's very challenging to find people in the field. That generally uh, is, is one of the areas that we focus on. How strong is the management team? Mm-hmm. So why? So, you know, have you always been interested in energy and mining sec- sectors, or is that just you just started to focus on that in 2015 when you made that shift? Our first energy investment actually predated PPMT Capital. Uh, goes back to 2007. Mm-hmm. Uh, we invested. Uh, that was my first energy investment. It was. Uh, very successful. We, you know, took a number of small companies and essentially consolidated them and created a much larger company, which we ended up uh, getting S and P rated, uh, single B minus, and uh, you know, creating a, a really nice steady uh, progression in terms of uh, EBITDA growth. 2011, 12, and 13. Respectively, we did uh, 35, 37, and 38 million EBITDA in that particular deal. So, you know, it was a deal that we, uh, you know, sort of really focused on fundamentals. We looked at, um, again, resource quality. We hired in management. We hired a top-rated CFO for the company. And, uh, you know, we were, we were lucky for, you know, a good period of the, you know, the, the time of that company cycle. So how did you know then in back in 2007 that you wanted to you know make that first investment into energy and then kind of shift that focus in 2015 to almost solely energy and mining. You know, what did you see in the markets that, you know, uh changed that mindset for you? That's a good question. It was the China effect and in 2003 when um I exited the first tech deal, um you know, I had a little bit of cash on hand and you know, and, and a lot of time, and I was basically uh, investing in derivatives, um, oil derivatives, essentially, and uh, made a lot of money. Oil went from $35 a barrel to $50, and, you know, it's it's almost laughable considering it went well over 100 uh, you know, in subsequent years, but uh, at 50, I started to get nervous and, you know, basically pulled out, felt that I'd made enough and I started looking for um, other areas to invest. And, you know, so we basically, that's how I started to end up doing the, uh, the, the other energy deal. We invested in coal, which uh, I've written about, you know, quite a bit in terms of, you know, what, what's happening with, with coal today. And in those days, uh, going back 2007, it was, it was on a nice run. So, Basically, I stepped out of oil, which was a derivative, and went into a direct investment in in coal. Mm-hmm. So now I'm going to divert a little bit because uh, you know you just wrote this article for the magazine that I'm going to get into in a second. But before I even get to that, you know, I, I think this would be a good question to set the stage for it. You know, what what exactly do you do at PPMT Capital? Well, we're a multifamily uh, office manager. Um, and what that means is, uh, in the family office space, you have essentially two types of uh, family offices. You have single family offices, which is essentially just a, uh, you know, a, a family business generally gets formed, 
Um, and that family business, as it accumulates cash and has the need to invest that cash, will start to look and act like a essentially a small private equity uh, type operation. And you have multifamily offices, which generally serve all sizes of, um, of family offices or family investors. Um, but in general, the sort of 30 million of net worth up to, let's say, 250 million of net worth is sort of where multi-family office um, advisors add the most value. Because once family offices get past that 250 million level, they start to achieve, uh, you know, size where they can, you know, sort of bring on uh, bring on staff and start to professionalize in terms of how they operate. So family offices are uh, range in size from, you know, very small organizations um, all the way up to, you know, companies like Wildcat Capital that is technically a family office that manages a couple of billion dollars. Mm -hmm. So that's basically what we do. Now, um, our focus is essentially we invest in five different areas, Obviously, mining and energy, we've covered a little bit of that. Infrastructure and industrials, food and agriculture. We also invest in manufacturing and, of course, real estate, which is um, sort of a staple component of, uh, of family office investing. Mm -hmm. All right. So you actually just touched on my next question a little bit, but maybe we get the full definition, you know, because, uh, you know, we just published your article in the recent issue of the Microcap Review titled uh, uh, Family Offices, What You Need to Know. And so for those who don't know, you know, just uh, uh, give us uh, your own Investopedia definition. You know, uh, what, what is a family office then? So a family office is basically a um, – generally it, it's, it's, a, it's an evolution. Uh, most families uh, have a business that, you know, they run, whether that's an agriculture business or an industrial business. And so they accumulate a significant amount of wealth. And, and, and generally what they do is start to originate investments, perform their own due diligence. They'll hire in, uh, you know, um, investment professionals to conduct that due diligence. And they'll run their investments like a portfolio. And what that allows them to do is several different things. Number one, uh, as families approach generational issues, it allows them to become very efficient in terms of how they uh, hand off, you know, portions of wealth that the family generates to the subsequent generations. Um, it also allows them to handle the issues that come about uh, with, um, you know, that handoff of wealth and control of wealth. There have been some. Uh, very good examples of multi-generational uh, wealth management. And there have also been some, obviously throughout history, some very poor examples of uh, multi-generational wealth management. Um, but if you look at um, what typically happens, the let's say you have two or three generations of, of uh, a family alive at the same time. They're all you know, taking on their inheritance. Rather than having to have everyone with different views, uh, you know, sort of chiming in and trying to manage, um, 
you know, a single group of assets, that management is professionalized, it pays out dividends or distributions or whatever the mechanism is that the family chooses to the beneficiaries rather than having hands-on direct, uh, you know, uh, involvement. So, you know, to, to put it very simply, you know, Bobby, you know, uh, 30 years from now when, you know, your SNN empire is, uh, you know, generating huge wealth and you've got all your kids and grandkids running around, uh, instead of them all coming in and figuring out how to manage SNN's future, uh, it's professionalized and you just say, collect your dividend checks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, you know, in, that, in the article too, you, you gave a little history as well. You talked about, you know, the Medici family being one of the the first, you know, pseudo family offices. I mean, that'd be kind of fun to talk a little bit about, you know, some of that history that you covered. Yeah, well, um, you know, most of the articles that you'll read, they talk about the, you know, the Rockefeller family and Standard Oil. But uh, if you go back in history, um, family offices are have existed uh, in the West. The Medici family is uh, one of the most profound and prolific um, Italian uh, merchant banking families, actually. And they operated very much in that capacity, um, running what was essentially a family trade finance business as a, you know, as a professional uh, business. And at one point became, you know, one of the most, um, uh, I guess, uh, prolific uh, financiers in in Europe. Um, You go back to ancient China, you had, uh, you know, certain dynasties operating businesses in trade uh, through the Silk Road in the same way as, as families, rather than being, um, you know, sort of professionalized corporations and bringing outside investors, they operated as one dynasty. So, um, you know, that's, that's, it's got a long history. <laughs> I feel like we could do just one episode on history. Uh, of family mm-hmm. offices. So, um, you know, in the, in the article also, you talk about how, uh, you know, the number of family offices is growing, you know, at such a fast pace, you know, what, why is that? Well, there are a number of factors. Um, it is the, I think the fastest growing sector of, of private capital. And, um, there are a number of factors. Number one, uh, the Madoff scandal actually, caused a lot of families to to really wake up. They were handing their capital off to, you know, major financial institutions. And I think going through the combination of Madoff and the financial crisis uh, of 2008-2009, a lot of families didn't understand the risk exposure that they had. And so there has been a very, very strong trend uh, toward, um, you know, forming uh, family organizations to do direct management so that they're not in a blind pool of, you know, private equity capital, for example, they are actually moving very fast and toward direct investments into every single asset that they own. And then they basically run it as their own portfolio. Mm -hmm. And then, so, so this was one question that I I've always had then, you know, is, what, what would you say is the difference then between family offices and, let's say, a hedge fund or an asset management firm? That's a great question, and there are a number of differences. First of all, you know, the family offices, for the most part, do not have outside capital. 
They're always investing capital that they've earned through other investments or through their own uh, their own businesses. And basically, um, for that reason, there are a lot less out, outside influences. So they have a lot more flexibility in terms of what they can do. They're not driven by hurdle rates. They're not driven by predefined exits, uh, you know, to satisfy other investors, um, which generally makes family office capital long-term capital. Um, you know, many of many of my clients, uh, you know, have you know willingness to stay in deals seven, ten years, and even longer. So that's relatively unheard of in professional money management. You will not find that in a hedge fund and very, very rarely in a private equity fund because they all have to exit at some point. Um, You know, family offices will, you know, be perfectly comfortable buying a business or making an investment and owning that business for for the long term. Mm -hmm. And then also in the article, you mentioned that, you know, the the family office ecosystem uh, has its own protocols and language. You know, can you explain a little bit about that? Yeah, definitely. So, you know, with family offices, unlike, um, let's say, professional hedge funds or private equity uh, funds, they don't usually have a formalized origination platform. So if you're going to a major private equity fund to, you know, pitch a deal, they've got a set infrastructure whose job is generally just to, you know, go through the markets and figure out, you know, who the players are in a given sector and, you know, um, they're paid essentially to listen to the story and, and, and under, understand and evaluate those investments. Family offices generally are small. The average family office is 10 to 15 people. Um, and there's only so much origination that they can do. So what do you do in that scenario? Um, yet they get pounded with, you know, tremendous, uh, amounts of uh, offers uh, of investments, and so they rely, you know, principally on their trusted circle, right? Which generally is, you know, their accounting staff or, you know, um, a lawyer or you know, close friends. And so, getting into the, uh, you know, getting efficiently into the family office uh, ecosystem you know, to efficiently raise capital can sometimes be challenging because you have to find out um, what the appropriate path is to to a group. That's number one, generally. The second is that most of the the people, particularly in sort of mid-sized family offices, Bobby, are, you know, these are business people, right? Um, they're used to sitting across the table, developing relationships, uh, you know, working with with people to develop businesses, develop relationships over a period of years. Um, you know, the concept of, you know, a pitch book coming in and, you know, flip through the pages and, you know, look at a couple of ratios and, you know, make a quick investment decision Um you know, it's generally not the, the, the way they invest. Family office investing is very, very much relationship investing. Um, so, you know, when we talk to uh, people that ask us about the, you know, how to approach family offices, we generally, um, you know, say, do your homework, understand what their interests are, what businesses are they in, what investments have they made in the past, um, and, you know, approach through, you know, um, 
approach directly, which, which can, can be the best way, but, uh, you know, try and get a meeting and, and, you know, have a quality conversation and, you know, try to develop a relationship before you actually go in and start pitching, you know, uh, you know, a, a particular deal. So, I mean, I mean, are most family offices readily available or do they have an online presence, you know, cause I think most people hearing this will probably be like, well then, all right, that's nice. Okay. I don't, I don't mind doing the more informal approach, but how do I, where's the network? Where do I find them? There actually are, um, a lot of growing, uh, uh, networks of family offices of all sizes. And, um, you know, I can, I can mention a few of them, uh, you know, if you're, if you're interested, uh, and you know, there are a lot of conferences nationally that, uh, where, where family offices are actually going out and as they are increasingly professionalizing, they're going out and attending these conferences and actively, you know, pressing the flesh and trying to meet, um, you know, CEOs and, uh, you know, intermediaries that, that, you know, have potential to, um, you know, present, uh, you know, transactions. And that's, that's a great way to do it um, mm. face to face. Um, and uh, those conferences allow you to do that. Right. There's a few organizations um, out there. One of the, one of the most active ones, which I think it, they are, they are a family office themselves is the Wilson family office um, out of Florida. And uh, Richard Wilson's done a very good job uh, building a network. He's, um, opened, you know, created access for, for a lot of families and, uh, companies to, you know, essentially meet at, you know, a whole series of conferences throughout the country. So it's, it's very effective. Mm -hmm. So I, I actually want to get back on your point about this, you know, the formalized origination platform and how there's not, it, it's very informal, so to speak. It's not really a formal one. It's, it's more on that, like, uh, you know, you, you happen to meet this one person through this person, you know, it's a lot of relationship building, you know, so in the family office ecosystem in this space, I mean, you know, uh, are, are, is, is some type of thesis created so that at least when they do come across something that fits that they're able to dissect it a little bit further, or, I, I mean, it just seems very much catch if catch can luck of the draw type of thing, you know, I mean, uh, how, how, how is it done? Like for instance, with what you do, you know, uh, I don't know, maybe, maybe we could get a little bit more detailed on that because it just, it seems just so like uh, diamond in the rough luck of the draw type situation. Well, that's a, that's a good question. And, you know, um, the one thing about the family office space is that it, it really is varied, Bobby. So you mm. have, you have every situation from like a, uh, like I said, a wildcat capital that is like walking into an Apollo, right? I mean, they're, mm. they're a, you know, they're a sophisticated organization. The founder comes out of banking, you know, so basically the whole thing is uh, a, a very professionalized private equity operation uh, down to, you know, the $30 million, you know, sort of high net worth, uh, you know, smaller family office where, you know, they basically just, they're just stepping away from, you know, sort of packaged product managed, managed money, right. And, and starting out. And so the characteristics of that size, uh, family can be very much like just dealing with a high net worth investor. Mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, you, you, you find all range now, um, 
the key word that you mentioned is origination. Um, you know, we believe that, you know, quality origination is probably the most important component to um, achieving, you know, returns. And there are a lot of characteristics that go into origination. Um, and a big part of that is, is the thesis. And so you will find uh, family offices that are, they'll come out and say, we're value investors and we're interested in, you know, uh, certain sectors. Many times what a family office will invest in is the sector that they know. Mm -hmm. So, for example, we have an agriculture client that, you know, will invest in um, primarily, you know, food and agriculture type um, investments. The, the one commonality that you'll find uh, uh, among many family offices um, is that they'll all invest in some form of real estate. And the reason for that is that you can get, you know, better than bank returns. Uh, there's a lot of hedge, you know, uh, capability implied, inflation hedge, you know, capability and safety implied in, you know, certain types of real estate investments. So it's like basically, you know, most family offices will have some sort of real estate portfolio, but mm -hmm. they're also investing in many areas from venture capital to, um, you know, energy investing to, you know, I mean, they're, they're all over the board. So it's, it's a big mistake to just assume our oh, family offices are all real estate. They're really not. They're in, they're in many, many different, uh, uh, sectors. Um, we've seen family offices that invest, for example, in Broadway productions, <laughs> um, uh, which is crazy. Right? I, I have no idea how you do that, but um, or handicap a good production from a bad one. But there are families that do it. Um, there are families that invest in biotech, and there are families. Uh, family offices actually emerging in your neck of the woods, just a bit south in San Diego, that you know are all investing in you know technology venture. These are the guys backing you know getting in on the unicorns and so on and so forth. So you know there's a lot of varied investment. So there mm -hmm. is a thesis. Now, as a multifamily office manager, we try to provide a level of um, investment discipline and thesis to um, the families that are less structured in that 30 to 250 million range. We have some larger clients as well that happen to be very structured, and I can explain you know, some of the sort of interaction that takes place there. But we approach it from a thesis, and our thesis, as I mentioned, we invest in five areas. And if you look at those areas, they tend to be very asset heavy. Um, and so, asset heavy, and I would say defensive, um, you know, in terms of some of the, let's say, technology changes that we anticipate taking place and other changes that we anticipate taking place. So, by investing in heavy infrastructure, energy, um, food, you know, those types of areas, we see, you know, a, a ability to put together a sort of all-weather portfolio that will perform in, you know, uh, many different, uh, you know, economic scenarios. Mm -hmm. um, and we always like to say that, you know, origination is the key to um, successful investment returns. If you're, you know, let's just hypothetically it's, it's it's basic math but you know hypothetically if you're looking at oh let's say the food sector and uh you know there's 500 deals taking place in that sector you know the professional pe firm will will see at least 60 percent of that activity 
right? Because they're on all the lists, they're, they're, they're perusing data, they're going to all of the auctions. And so they're going to see at least 60% of that. And so they can cherry pick from a larger audience. Many family offices feel like they're seeing significant deal flow because they get pounded with everything, mm-hmm. but they're not seeing as a percentage the, 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 you know, a large percentage of the activity in a sector. Typically, they're seeing 5 to 10%. So, you know, if you're seeing only 5 to 10% of the, let's say, M&A activity in the food sector, you're really not, you know, being given a chance to uh, participate in the top-level deals. We, um, we basically are a data-driven group. We, we have access to a very significant amount of deal flow in the sectors that we cover. Our reputation is that we find stuff that most people haven't seen. And that's because we're not going to auctions. We're not, you know, uh, taking in broker dealer deal flow. We're basically going straight into, uh, you know, chambers of commerce. We're, we're, you know, by investing in um, particular industries, we start to get intel as to what's happening in those industries. We like to get to uh, the companies when an event is about to happen before the market knows that it's going to happen. And that way we can get in, usually if there's some urgency, we can get in, we can make an investment, whether that's a debt or equity investment. We can negotiate it directly with the company, get to understand the company and not have, you know, the the critical data that we need to make a, you know, wise investment decision filtered through, you know, third parties. So we really like to get in direct. Mm -hmm. And that's uh, that's what we try to do for for our family offices. Mm -hmm. So then you also argue in the article that, and I quote, uh, family offices are nirvana for the microcap CEO looking for an anchor investor, end quote. Why? Well, that's a great question, Bobby. And, you know, um, most of the microcap companies that I see are, you know, look, they're, they're capital starved. You know, they have, uh, they have big business plans. They have voracious appetites for capital. And they're generally relying on sale of equity, um, you know, uh, to raise the bulk of that capital. Those equity rounds end up being, you know, dilutive to, you know, the the earlier investors, and then when they go into the debt markets, they're kind of pushed into, I call it the BDC plus market, where you know, there's all sorts of uh, bells and whistles added on that, you know, can also be dilutive, um, you know, ATMs and a lot of these uh, types of investments. And I think I wrote an article a couple of years ago in your magazine that highlighted, you know, several issues and the, the, the impact of, uh, you know, taking on dilutive capital. But many CEOs and boards of microcap companies aren't left with much of a choice. Now, with the family offices, if you have a microcap company, let's say an energy company, uh, just, just as an example, um, you know, that has a solid geology report um, and you've just struggled in terms of getting capital in. You go into family offices that happen to invest in that sector, of which there are many, have a quality discussion, an honest and open discussion. Talk about your plans, talk about your management teams, talk about the strengths and weaknesses very candidly, right, of what's going on with your business. And if you get a family office on board that is long-term capital. They can structure deals that are non-dilutive capital, right? They're not a hedge fund with a three-year horizon or 
you know, XYZ hurdle rate that they have to hit. These guys will go in and basically invest and be your partner for the long term. And we always uh, emphasize that just because a company is a public company in the microcap sector, it doesn't mean that everything has to be, you know, a security issuance with registration rights and future dilution windows that that always seem to create some sort of overhang on the common you know, stock investors that basically were the lifeblood of the company in its early stages. There are many structures where, you know, if an asset is, you know, let's say a significant asset it's going to require a lot of capital, deals can be structured at the subsidiary level with family offices. And they have the ability to, uh, you know, navigate through those waters and structure deals that are very smart, that are non-dilutive, low-cost sources of capital for, you know, for uh, public company, uh, you know, management teams. And for that reason, I say it's nirvana. It's, ca- it's high-quality capital that's well worth uh, the extra effort that it takes to, uh, you know, to, to, uh, to get. Mm-hmm. So, Carl, you know, what, what then experience has guided your, your microcap investing thesis? Like when you're going in and you're looking at a, a company for potential investment for, for your, one of the family offices, you know, what experience do you think back to as like, oh, yeah, yeah I remember that. Like, <laughs> so, you know, what? Do oh, you yeah, have one of those? yeah, yeah, yeah. We've had, uh, you know, I mean, look, 31 years of, uh, involvement in investing, believe me, you know, I've had very significant successes and I've also had some pretty significant failures. Anyone who's afraid to look at the failures, failure is a great uh, opportunity to learn. So we've become very conservative in terms of how um, we we go in. And, and, and since 2007, we've really had an approach of, you know, sort of what we call cash flow engines. Um, we invest in sectors where, um, we're not taking uh, a lot of execution risk. So, you know, in, in, in food and agriculture, energy, you know, you can really boil down uh, a company's ability to perform to, you know, some very understandable components. And so when we look at a transaction, and I'll, I'll gravitate to energy again because it's, you know, it's never easy, but it's very understandable. You cannot fix geology, right? So, you know, we'll go in and make sure that if we're looking at a PV-10, that PV-10 is done by a top engineering firm like the Netherlands Sewell or, you know, somebody on that level, right? Um, And that's not enough. It's a good start, but it's not enough. So we'll look at a PV-10 value, which, uh, you know, is basically the, you know, future uh, you know, projected cash flow of, of, of a deal and, and calculated on a net present value basis. And that's a good start, right? Um, we'll then look at other factors. We don't like to take um, uh, commodity risk. So we'll look at a situation where when that cash flow is developed, we can hedge. We'll typically do a deal where we're hedging five years um, and we'll try to get in the deal on a pricing where we can at least have principal return in three years. So, um, you know, that's, that's very much our approach. Um, and then we get to management. What have the management done before? Uh, very critical. We don't want anyone learning on our dime. So, you know, uh, we look for management teams that have had, uh, experience, uh, 
within the company size of the company that we're investing in. You know, we've seen scenarios over the years where you get management teams that have come out of the majors, right? Where, you know, they've had, uh, you know, extensive budgets and, you know, so on. Um, operating in a small company environment or a micro cap environment can be very, very different. So we look for, you know, uh, people that have ex executed in that type of environment before. So, you know, show me somebody that's had, you know, a hundred million dollar PV10, you know, uh, in a micro cap and has successfully converted that, you know, created a responsible capital structure for the investors. And, you know, that's the, that's the type of, uh, you know, company that, you know, we would, uh, we would look to get in, involved in, you know, in the future. Mm -hmm. So, uh, usually I ask in this, my last question is, uh, you know, uh, advice for new microcap investors. But I'm going to alter this one a little bit, in the sense that you know, what advice do you have for um, potentially new family offices or, or or high net worth investors that might be looking to start a family office? You know, what advice do you have for them? Well, first and foremost, origination is. Um, expensive and it's a it, it's a significant um you need a significant team to basically make sure that you're seeing that you know 60 percent plus of deal flow in a sector um arrive at a thesis if your thesis is you know basic uh basic commodity investing um you know make sure that you're seeing the sort of 50 60 percent plus deal flow in a sector now how do you do that um it's a little bit self-serving, but basically go to a good multi-family office platform that essentially already has that infrastructure in place because it can take years to build. Um, and if you just start investing in random deals, you're going to get random returns. Um, so, you know, by by having that origination platform in place, uh, that adds um, a significant, that's a significant check in terms of ability to uh, make sure you're seeing quality deal flow uh, with with quality characteristics, quality management teams, et cetera. Um, secondly, is to have you know the uh, infrastructure in place uh, to manage those deals. Um, taking on even two or three investments for uh, you know I'm talking significant investments of 25 million plus for a family office. Uh, can be time-consuming, um, and uh, many families struggle with that, um, and some fail uh, because of ability to really stay on top of their investments. Uh, steady board presence. Look for companies that have, you know, uh, uh, tremendous transparency um, that that allow you to get a full understanding of the company beyond. Just the the pitch book and the you know the the basic uh, information that's in a data room. Uh, try to get very close to to the companies and you know understand what their critical success factors are. Most of the time, and this is the advantage for family offices. Most of the time in the microcap sector, its ability to have access to capital at the right time. So, you know, um, origination is a very, very important component for new families uh, that are considering uh, getting into into the space. And Carl, where can my audience go and find more information about you and PPMT Capital? We have a website at uh, 
www.ppmtcapital.com. Carl, thank you so much for joining me today. It was a pleasure. And uh, I'll be putting a link to the, your article uh, in, in the description of this interview. So uh, thank you again for joining me today. Okay, great. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you all for tuning into the Planner Microcap podcast. And thank you, Carl, again for coming on to the program. You can access the podcast by going on to stocknewsnow.com under podcast. Go to podbean.com and search Planet Microcap Podcast or on iTunes and search Planet Microcap Podcast. Stay tuned for the next Planet Microcap Podcast where we'll have our next guest to discuss all things microcap. If you have any questions or comments about the podcast, please send an email to info at snnwire.com. I'd love to hear from all of you. This podcast has been brought to you by SNN Incorporated, publishers of StockNewsNow.com, the official microcap news source, and the Microcap Review Magazine. I'm your host, Robert Kraft, and thank you again for joining me on the Planet Microcap Podcast. Have a great week, everyone.